So, uh, if you're new with us, my name's Rob, and I get to be one of the pastors here. If you're at home online, uh, we're really excited to have you with us uh, as well. I don't want to overlook the fact uh, that you gave generously uh, to, to help those that are in need. So, can we just celebrate the good news we just heard a moment ago? I'm also super thrilled to announce that in our church, we, our fiscal year runs August to July. Uh, and so we just wrapped up our ministry year. And because so many of you are committed to the mission of our church and helping people become fully engaged in Christ at church on mission, we were able to meet our giving goals for this year. So thank you. Let's celebrate that as well. Now, it's a big Sunday for our church. Um, at the end of service, we're going to celebrate some, some men that are coming forward to say that they aspire to be an elder at our church. It's also a big day, church, because guess what? I got a new clicker. Yes. Yeah. Yes. If you've been around for a while, if you're new, you're like, what's the big deal with the clicker? For a while, every once in a while, it does whatever it wants. You should also know that they gave me a clicker with the laser on it. So if you fall asleep, watch out. I'm coming at you. Now, last week I learned that there are some people in our church that when it comes to hand motions and participation, that's just not something that you're into. So I'm going to help you grow through that uh, this morning with another opportunity to get to engage with a little bit of true or false. This one's not as elaborate as last week, but um, I want you to participate. Here's the question. It's really easy. True or false? Leadership matters. If you're in the camp of saying true, would you just raise your hand this morning? Yeah. I would say the overwhelming majority of people here this morning would say, yeah, that's true. Leadership matters. Leadership matters at home. Leadership matters when you show up to work. For those of you that are students, you know that leadership matters on campus. We know from a political standpoint, leadership matters. Everywhere we go, this is a matter of importance. And so it's no surprise to me that as we open up the first book of the Bible in Genesis, we see instantly that leadership matters. And if we follow the narrative, if we follow the trajectory all the way from Genesis to Revelation, we would see that leadership matters. And as God was starting the church, the church that we just sung about, the church that we just read about, the church that we just responded to, God's holy church, we'd also see that leadership matters. And so today, my simple goal is to help us see what God has to say about leadership and those that aspire to lead in the church. And to do that, we're gonna look at a letter in the New Testament so if you have your Bible, or if you're going to follow along on your phone, that's great too. We're going to be in Titus chapter 1, and we're going to start by reading verses 5 through 9. Here's what it says. This is Paul writing to an up-and-coming leader in the church by the name of Titus. He says, The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town. As I directed you, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild 
and disobedience. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Church, I want to invite you to join me in prayer as we open up his word today. Lord, uh, I'm reminded of what Paul told the church, that as you call us to be ambassadors, you say that we're not in this to please man, but to please you, to follow your leadership. And so as we open up your word today, help us to do that. Would you open up our hearts, our minds, and our souls? God, it's true that we aspire to be a church that does not make it difficult for people to turn to God, that honors the gospel of truth and grace. So as we listen intently to what you communicated many years ago, would you help us to see this morning how it applies to us today? So that when we leave here today, we would be following your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. All right. So here's the framework. So um, if you're not familiar with some of the geography, what was happening here uh, in the New Testament. So Titus comes to faith right here in Corinth. So Paul's ministry preached the gospel. Jesus' ministry, seek and save the lost. So what was Paul's ministry? Seek and save the lost. So Titus comes to faith. Now, what happened in Jerusalem is that there were those that were hearing the gospel and they were coming to faith. And so they left Jerusalem and they went back to Crete and the gospel's taken place. And what happens is all of these house churches start to pop up. And believe it or not, there were leadership issues. Surprise, surprise. And so Paul says, hey, here's how we're going to deal with some of the chaos and shenanigans that are taking place on this island. We're going to raise up leaders. But what you need to know about this island, Homer once said, this was the island of a thousand cities. So if there are so many cities, and the idea is that there's a church in each city, this is a significant leadership task that Titus is up against. This is an island that's 160 miles long, 37 miles why? So, verse 5, Paul says, hey, listen, Titus, the reason why I left you in Crete was that you might put in order. Now, this phrase in the Greek, very interesting. It's where we also get terms like orthopedics or orthodontia. In ancient times, this was terminology that was used by medical writers to describe the process of straightening limbs or putting bones back the way that they're supposed to be. And so the message here is leave nothing unfinished, get things straight, make sure that this church has order. But this is no easy task, because here's what's happening there at this time. There's this pendulum, there's this swing between legalism and lawlessness. Briefly talked about this last week. There were those in the camp 
that circumcision is a have to, along with rituals and traditions. There were those that were committed to helping people stay in religious slavery. And at the same time, there were those that had heard the gospel and said, I'm going to embrace a mindset that says, as long as I believe the right thing, I have a blank check when it comes to morality. That as long as I believe the gospel and I say, yep, that's true, then it doesn't matter with what I do with my life. I'm free because I'm saved by grace. And so Paul says, hey, we have a leadership issue, so what I want you to do is I want you to go in and I want you to appoint elders. Now, on the whole, if we look at all of the New Testament, we get some pictures of early church structures. The challenge is today in churches like ours, everyone's trying to figure out what does it look like to govern or lead the church in 2023. And believe it or not, it's not as cut and dry as sometimes we talk about it. Like there's different denominations. Like this is how we function as a church. We're a non-denominational church. Now, as we look at what the leaders did in the New Testament, what we see is that they established leadership through context. That they went into Ephesus and said, how will we establish a leadership structure here in Philippi and Crete? But one thing's for sure, that this was not a process of happenstance or like you won the lottery. Like, congratulations, your name got drawn. You now get to be an elder. In our context today, it was not certainly through a mass email says, hey, like a note on the bulletin board that says, come sign up to be an elder at our church. No, what we read about is that the Holy Spirit began to work in a leader's life. And they began to aspire to serve in this position of leadership. And so leaders like Paul and Barnabas began to train and raise up those that felt called to serve as a leader. And they affirmed that calling through prayer, fasting, and a whole lot of time of observing how God was at work in their life. And if this was something that God was truly calling them to. So this was no simple process. This process was not happenstance. It was providence watching God work in an individual's life. So what did elders do? Well, a lot. If we look at the entirety of the New Testament, we see that part of their role was determining church policy. Part of their role was to oversee the church, to raise up leaders called to serve. And in the New Testament, we see this title, elder, pastor, overseer, interchangeably, used interchangeably. We see that they were called to lead, teach, and preach, to exhort and refute, to act as shepherds and lead by example. That is quite a job description. And so it's no surprise that when it came to the day-to-day operations and wisdom, they said, we need to have some other roles of leadership. And so one of the offices that we see in the New Testament is the office of deacons. In the church today, some churches still have deacons. Churches like ours have staff. Some churches have a combination of both deacons and staff. That's a sermon for another day. Paul says, appoint elders. And here's how you know if they're qualified. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe 
and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Guys, if this seems, if this is what it seems, then I should just turn in my job. Uh, you just re res like resign, uh, say this is it, because if you were to ask my wife and kids, they would say, this is not true of my husband. This is not true of my dad. But that's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is not perfection. This is an umbrella term to describe everything that comes next. But his argument is simple. Titus, if you want to know if someone's fit for serving in this leadership role, go and talk to their spouse. If you want to know if someone's fit for serving in this leadership role, go spend some time with their family. That's what he's saying here. He says, faithful to his wife, a man. Now, when we take English or we take Greek and we try to put it into English language, sometimes that process can be kind of funny. The, the way that this really reads is a one-woman man, but even in that, it's an idiom. So another example of an idiom that we see in the New Testament is that it, the scriptures say that man shall not covet uh, thy neighbor's wife. So that doesn't mean that the wife can do whatever she wants. It applies to the whole institution of marriage. And so this isn't just a leadership qualification for this role. Really, this is a qualification to be a follower of Jesus. That if you're going to get married, that the way that you approach marriage is that it was ordained by God. And that it is too to be holy and sanctified and set apart. That our marriages are set apart and say, hey, look at us as we follow Jesus together. That it's a reflection of the gospel, balancing truth and grace. But the big question, often debated, there's a couple in this passage, we'll get to them all. It's going to be fun today. Does this disqualify someone that has experienced divorce? Is that what this is saying here? Now I'll say this. My parents got a divorce when I was five years old. And I'm still suffering the effect of divorce in my life today. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus here today, and you've been through a divorce, or you know people that are walking through divorce, as I sit and listen to people in the midst of divorce, it usually sounds like this. It's awful. Don't ever go through divorce. It's, I just hate it. And so if you've had those thoughts before, you would agree with God. Because God hates divorce too. It's not his preference. Yet in grace and mercy and reconciliation and restoration, God can continue to work in an individual's life. And so when it comes to this qualification, what we do is we look at the testimony. And we see how God is working and leading this individual. And that it's not an automatic disqualifier. Now, we're poking the bear this morning, so let's just keep going. But what about if their children are not following Jesus? Is that what this is saying here? That, hey, if, if they've got kids at home and their children have said, hey, I'm not on team Jesus, does that mean that they're disqualified from this role of leadership? Now, this is where context is helpful. 
Because this is not the only set of qualifications that we read about in the New Testament. If we take all of the qualifications, what we'd see about this list is that they are based on decisions that the individual makes. Like what can they control when it comes to their relationship and following after Jesus? So the heart behind this is, is the individual doing everything that they can at home to create an environment where their children would be inspired to say, what God wants is best for my life. Where Jesus goes, that's where I want to go. But in the end, we know that we make that choice. And they may choose not to follow Jesus. But here's the key. There's a difference between pointing them there and leading them there. It's one thing to say, to follow Jesus is this. I'm going to teach it and put it as principles on a piece of paper. It's another thing to internalize it and say, this is what governs and steers and directs my life. And I'm all in on Jesus. That's the heart here behind this qualification. So Paul continues. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. This right here is one of the most highly debated subjects in the church today. Is this leadership role in the church something that only men should aspire to serve in? It's interesting. As you read this in the Greek, these pronouns are not there. They're not present. It's also interesting because, again, this title, overseer, elder, pastor, are used interchangeably. And it's fascinating when you look at the qualifications of this role and you see Paul talk about qualifications of other leadership roles in that same letter to Timothy, and it's strikingly similar. Very close. So what I would say is that when it comes to the two predominant camps on this subject, and I'll explain them in a second, I'm not convinced that either of these camps have it 100% figured out. There's a reason why I have a good friend that sits in one camp and a good friend that sits in another, and I can listen to them go on for hours. And some of the best scholars, writers, and thinkers on one side and the best scholars and writers and thinkers on the other side can go back and forth like a ping pong match. But the two predominant camps would be those that subscribe to an egalitarian viewpoint and another that would subscribe to a complementarian viewpoint. Those that sit in this camp say, hey, all humans... Man, woman are created equal in the image of God. Therefore, there should be no gender-based restrictions in the church. The complementarian viewpoint is, yes, that is true. But it's also true that just as we see in the Trinity, that we worship a God that is one God, right? Three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that each person within the Trinity is equal but they have distinct, complementing roles. Those that serve in this camp would say that's how God has established the church. But the big money question is this morning, everybody's dying to know, well, where do we fall on this spectrum? I would say we are complicarians. 
And those of you that have served as elders in this church for a long time, before you write that email this week, know our official position as a church has not changed. When I'm asked to pick one to represent our church and where we've stood for the past 50 years, it is in the camp of complementarian. What's confusing to me as a leader that's been here almost five years now is we don't function that way as a church. We're thrilled to have women in this church that have the gift to teach and to build up the body through his word. That it has been a practice at this church that we have women that do teach. And sometimes men have been present. It's also true that we have women in leadership here that shepherd volunteers that are males. It's also true that on a Sunday morning, we have women that lead us from the platform that are gifted and talented, and I'm grateful that they do. That as they sing, they are just as much teaching the word of God. Because what I know to be true is you won't remember the message a couple days later, but you'll remember that song. And that they lead us in ministry moments where they open up the word of God and they teach it and they share it. And God uses that to help us understand how to better follow Jesus. And I would tell you personally, as a follower of Jesus, I am influenced by women that know the word maybe even better than I do. That have studied it for decades that are scholars. And I will say that I believe that my wife has the gift of teaching and that she is wise. And I'm grateful that she does that for our kiddos. And she shapes me. Sometimes the things I say from up here came from her. Don't tell her that. There's a podcast that I listen to. Her name's Natasha Crane. She's a great thinker, writer. She studies the word, but she's gifted in understanding the culture today and some of the problems that we're facing. And she takes it and she equips her listeners to follow Jesus. So for us as a church, there's a lot of things that women can do here and we're excited that they get to do here. We have women that serve on our nominating committee which is no simple task to sit on a part of a group and to walk with candidates and to discern, are they fit and qualified to be able to discern false teaching in the church? And also make hard decisions in terms of management of resources. And also to come alongside and care for people, to shepherd them, to show up in those hard moments in their life. We have women that speak into that process. But where we land is that when it comes to the final say on matters of the church, when it comes from theology or church practice and the things that is listed out, that we would say that that role is reserved for male leadership. And you might disagree. I've got friends that would disagree with me. But that's where we here, we are here at this church. But I would also say that there's some wisdom that comes with that, and here's why. One of the things that's true about my role is that I also get to serve as an elder at this church. And I wear the hat of being a pastor and overseer, and that my job isn't just shepherding people and teaching the word of God. My job is also manager. 
that part of my job is to make difficult decisions. And sometimes you all agree with those decisions. Sometimes you don't. And it can be hard as a leader sometimes because believe it or not, there's no veil here. Like just as much as you can see me, I can see you. I can see the body language. When I go in the lobby sometimes, the looks and the lookaways. That there's an enemy, an adversary that wants to fill my head with lies and to make things seem like they're true, but they're not. It's hard to come alongside my wife sometime as a young pastor's wife, trying to do the best that she can to help our children in partnership follow Jesus. But sometimes that weight feels like you're in a fishbowl. And as my kids get older and people see them differently, that's something to walk through them with as well. And that weight and that heaviness sometimes requires me to share things with our board of elders because that's healthy to share the lows. But I also get to share the highs. Like when I showed up to work on Tuesday or Wednesday this week, and one of our pastors is there waiting to tell me, I led someone to Jesus last night. I'm like, that's amazing. When I get to talk with someone in the lobby like last week and I find out they're driving from Mexico, New York to go to church here, like is the Mexican food any better up there? Because we're still trying. We lived in California. We want a good burrito and a chimichanga and an enchilada. But 45 minutes to go to church? Praise God. Or those moments like today, as I'm out there saying hello to people, as people come in and Pastor Wendell says, they want to get baptized. Yes, praise God. There's highs and lows. And that pendulum swing is emotionally exhausting. It's spiritually exhausting. And that wrestle happens with our board of elders. And so my wife and I would say, it would be inappropriate for me to have that type of intimacy with a woman. And so personally, I feel most comfortable serving at a church where the board of elders is a group of men, because I think there's a whole lot of wisdom based on how our church functions. And I get it, you might disagree with that. We can have a cup of coffee, we can have conversations. I'd love to grow with you in that. We've kicked over some hornet's nests. Should we keep going? Why not? Let's do some more. Um, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. The thing about lists is that a list will tell you two things, what's on the list and what's not on the list. Lists provide definition. Sometimes you have to say, well, this is what it says, but what doesn't it say? Because what's not on the list is the requirement of certain degrees or financial status or social status. Instead, the messaging here is maturity in Christ. One of the values of the last church that I served at was that we measure maturity not based on how much we know, but rather how well we love. 
Like, to have knowledge and wisdom is great. We need to study the Word of God. We need to better understand it. We need people that are equipped to teach us how to better understand it. That's important. But what we do with what we know is also incredibly important. Like, what we know to be true about Jesus, does that help us love other people the way that he loved us? Spiritual maturity. He continues. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message, and this is important, as it has been taught. Last week we talked about gospel-ish, that we should not add to the message of the scriptures, that we should not subtract away from the message of the gospel, that we should not seek to divide loyalties with Jesus, that we should not seek a message that multiplies works over grace, that when we do that, that's no longer the gospel. We're no longer subscribing to the message that has been taught. Or as Jude 3 said that we read earlier, the faith. So part of this leadership role is discerning what happens when we go sideways. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. It's so important to understand that when these leaders were writing these words, they were not of the understanding that this was a journal. Like, I'm just, this is what God taught me today. Or that this was like a letter and the way that we would send an email today. As they wrote these words, they understood that what they were writing was scripture. You say, how is that possible? Well, in the same way that a wind goes into a sail and carries the boat, the Holy Spirit comes into the follower of Jesus and carries that rider. And you say, well, how can we be sure that they got it right? We're all humans. We make mistakes. There are fantastic resources out there to help us walk through that. One of my favorite go-tos, gotquestions.org. It's an app on your phone. It's a lifesaver. Those phone-a-friend moments, pop it up. Yeah, I'm not sure, but you know, it does say. Another one, crossexamine.org dealing with the hard questions like this one. Can we really believe that scripture is what it is? But this is relevant because the moment a leader in the church doesn't see scripture as an authority, or the moment a leader in the church says, I'm not sure if we can say that inerrancy is a thing, the foundation of that church begins to erode. And it is the foundation of our faith that comes to the surface when our faith is tested. And if you sign up to lead in the church, your faith will be tested. So the question for these leaders is what is the foundation of your faith? Is it the trustworthy message as it has been taught? Leadership matters. It matters today, and it matters in the early church. So I want to share three questions that we ought to wrestle with when thinking about those that have been appointed to be elders in the church. Here's the first. Do they live out personally what they teach publicly? We get to do ministry at a large church. You know, the average church in the United States is 67 people. There's probably north of 1,000 people that would say, Eastern Hills is my home church. We're not there all the time, but if we had to say a church, that's the church 
that we would say is my home church. And with that comes great opportunity, the opportunity to reach more and more people. But one of the challenges of being a part of a larger church is that sometimes you experience disconnection away from the leader. Like when you're at a church of 67 people, it's like that pastor knows everybody's name and what's going on in their life. But as the church grows, that becomes more difficult. But it's not just the pastors and shepherds. It's also those that have the elder role as well. And so if there are seven of us and there are a thousand of you, there's going to be a disconnection, which makes it hard for where you sit because you don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not that close to them. How do I know that they're living out personally what they teach publicly? This is why it's important for leaders to have some friends, some that they do life with, some that they pull back the curtains and say, this is hard, and I'm not the best version of myself right now, and that they are vulnerable and transparent, and they welcome the sharpening and the pushing in and saying, yep, I'm still following Jesus, but this is one of those days where it's really hard. It's so important for leaders. So we need that in our church, but our leaders can't do that with everyone. Here's another. Are they easy to admire and hard to attack? Even the best leaders, even the most successful leaders, even leaders that if you were to say right now, who's a leader in your life that has shaped you, that really helped you follow Jesus? They're a sinner. They fall short. There's something in their life that they're constantly working on. There are no perfect leaders, just a perfect Savior, and that's Jesus. But it's interesting to me that oftentimes in the leadership, the things that are attacked are policies, principles, practices, personnel, decisions. But what about the person? Like, I've, I've never gotten an email in 15 years of leadership where someone was just so upset because the leader wasn't caring for themselves and caring for their family. Like, if they, had, if they had a day off, you know, are they taking time to grow themselves? Are they caring for themselves? Like, those aren't the emails that you get. It's how could you make this decision? Or I disagree. Or what are we doing? Or why isn't this fixed? Or why is this broken? And so, yes, we want to admire those that have the gift of teaching and say, praise God that they can teach well. And we want to admire and encourage leaders that, that can manage well and that are gifted in shepherding and come alongside other people that also have a character that reflects Jesus. But let's also admire the leader that says, it's so important for me to be emotionally, spiritually, and physically healthy. Because as one leader once said to me, one of the best gifts that you can give people to you lead to those that you're leading is to be healthy yourself. A healthy you will help those that you're leading. So let's also put this into the lens of admiration because we will always replicate what we celebrate. Here's one more. Do they make it easier to understand truth and harder to believe lies? One of the things that's true is that it's really hard to do this without making people feel uncomfortable. Like to tell someone that what they're believing, what they're grabbing hold of is not true, and that is leading them away from Jesus, 
That's uncomfortable. It takes compassion. It takes humility. It takes patience. It takes kindness to do those things. That's what makes it easy, rather than just dropping the hammer on them and saying, you need to change. But there's one more question that's not on the list here that I think is the most important. Who do they follow? Because what a leader does is important. But what's more important is who is shaping them and who are they following. Someone once said, to be a great leader, you have to first become a great follower. Think about it. Joshua followed Moses, who followed God. Elijah followed Elijah, who followed God. The disciples followed Jesus as Jesus followed his heavenly Father. So yes, leadership matters. But it's also true that who we follow matters more. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me tell you why you should follow Jesus. Because Jesus constantly cared about those that other people dismissed. He left the 99 for the one. He was a servant-based leadership. He didn't come to just preach to the multitudes. He came to live life alongside them, giving up his life to the cross so that all those would turn to him would experience new life serving to the point of death so that other people might live. He was laser-focused on his mission, seek and save the lost, but he handled distractions with grace. The person that showed up and said, I just want to be close to Jesus, he stopped and he saw them and he made time for them. He made time to get away, to be with the Father, to pray and to be filled up before he went out and served others. But Jesus was also a leader with high expectations. If you wanna follow me, pick up your cross. You wanna follow me, eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. What good is it for you to forfeit your soul but gain the whole world? Leading others says, this is gonna be uncomfortable, but I believe it's what's best for you. So when we follow Jesus, we're saying we believe that he has our best interests in mind. So for us as a church, if we're gonna be the type of church that sees as many people as possible fully engaged in Christ at church and on mission, the only way that that's going to happen is for us to be the type of church that raises up leaders whose lives say, follow me as I follow Jesus.